Good morning, it's DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Welcome in on a Tuesday morning. A couple leftovers from the weekend that we didn't really uh, get into all that much for you NFL fans. I thought I'd touch on them here right off the top. Uh, Dak Prescott still needs a long-term deal. He's got a one-year deal in Dallas, still needs a long-term deal. Um, And I read some stuff that, you know, Andy Dalton doesn't give Jerry Jones leverage. Yeah? No kidding. Dalton goes for three million bucks to Dallas, guaranteed, and then he could make up to seven million dollars. You know, various bonuses and all that stuff. And he played at TCU. He lives in Dallas. It's a good fit for him. He gets to go to a good good team. You know, if there's an injury, he's on a team that can go to the playoffs. Certainly, a team that can fight for the playoffs. And I read some interesting stats on Dalton, and they were in Peter King's football uh, in America column, this old Monday morning quarterback deal, and it was about Dalton's regular season record is really uh, comparable to Ben Roethlisberger. Like, their winning percentage isn't all that different. What's different? Roethlisberger wins playoff games. And there it is. Dalton doesn't. Uh, So as far as a backup, the Cowboys are getting a pretty high-quality backup. But Prescott's the guy. It's not just about the stats. It's about the leadership and fitting in with the team and all that. And nobody thinks Andy Dalton's going to lead the Cowboys to the Super Bowl. And everybody knows Jerry Jones is getting up there in years, and he wants to go to the Super Bowl. So I think that was kind of a manufactured deal. Uh, The other thing was an analysis of what is Bill Belichick doing in New England. Is he... uh, Absorbing all the dead money on the cap, cleaning up the cap situation, and prepping himself for the 21 draft, and maybe getting Trevor Lawrence, setting himself up for a 3-13 season? Or is he really going to get to 500 and maybe to the playoffs with Stidham at quarterback? Former Auburn guy, and the SEC's produced plenty of quarterbacks lately. The quarterback play's been getting better. Offense has been opening up. They haven't been playing these Neanderthal, you know, 9-6 to football games as often. Okay, occasionally they still do, but not as often. So what is Bill Belichick's game? Is he up there uh, you know, thinking, hey, this is going to be a 12-game season with an asterisk anyway. Why do I want to sign a 43-year-old quarterback to a big old contract? What? Let's just hit reset, see what we have in this young guy. This may only be a 12-game season when it's all said and done. Uh, the NFL is coming out with the schedule this week. And it'll be intriguing to see. Everything we're hearing is that they're going to put out a 16-game schedule, and it's going to look you know, bye weeks and all that, but that they've got you know plan B, plan C, plan D, um, rotate a couple games at the start of season to late in the year, eliminate the bye weeks in the regular season possibly, or eliminate the week before the Super Bowl. There, there are a lot of options to get the 16 games in. And they're not talking about floating the Super Bowl back into March, but... Man, for a lot of money, what do you think they'd do? <clears throat> Why is college football talking about floating the college season into February and March and April? So, anything is possible. Have a lot of plans. Hope for the best. Plan for the worst. Some stuff's just out of your control. It does seem uh, like one thing that we're seeing here in a lot of these stories is if there's testing. You know, the one thing that none of these leagues or college football control is, is there testing. If you're going to bring these people... T- this many people together, you have to be able to test them every week. Preferably, test them every day. Now, there aren't enough tests right now. And it's a bad look when there aren't enough tests. If you're hogging the test so that people can play football when other people need that's bad, 
bad PR. And I think it's so obviously bad PR that I don't think anyone's going to go anywhere near that. You know, they're all going to keep an eye on how many people can you test and how often can you test them. So we'll let them figure that out. Right now, I think that everything's full steam ahead. Go with the best case scenario possible and then just have your fallback plans. So, and one of those, of course, for college football is if they have to go from 12 games down to 10 or 9 or 8, and if they're playing conference games only, what happens with BYU? PK and I address that next. Stay with us right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. Jay Drew with the story over the weekend and the Deseret News about... The independence. What if there's a conference-only college football season? What then? PK, there are so many scenarios out there, and all of them are legit. I don't know that I give any of them more than about a 10% chance of happening just because of the sheer volume of the different scenarios of what could happen, delayed season, starting on time season, full season, pushed all the way back till spring, and I guess if they do have to contract the season down to eight or nine or ten games, I crack up at the thought of conference games only. Well, some conferences are playing eight and some are playing nine. The people who are playing eight games, if you can play nine, they're going to find a way to play the ninth game. If they can find a way to play the tenth game, they will. Every game is more money, and we've read a gazillion stories about ADs trying to buy the bu- or trying to balance the budget. So I think there's. There's a chance it'll be a limited schedule, conference games only, but even that will leave a window for some non-conference. And it would seem like one of the many things that would come out of that if it happened is maybe Notre Dame would finally play that game in Provo that they owe BYU from that first two-for-one. When they went independent, BYU announced a pair of two-for-one deals. I don't, I don't see that the second one's ever going to happen. But they've already done the two trips to South Bend for the first one, maybe... Maybe on short notice, this will be the year that Notre Dame says, well, we might as well come to Provo now. You know, the thing about this here, when you talk about that Notre Dame schedule, uh, for me, I think if BYU wants the biggest bang for its buck, it shouldn't demand a game in Provo or even ask a game for Provo. Put it in Vegas. Put it at Allegiant Stadium. That, that, I mean, that's BYU's uh, home away from home, having played there so many times. Uh, for uh, that, that's probably uh, if you go out of their own stadium, they probably played in Vegas the most, I would think. You know, excluding Utah, obviously, uh, but I'm talking about away from the the state because go, of the bowl go, games plus the games at UNLV. Yeah, yeah, I would think that that would add up because they played there what four years in a row, whatever, whatever. Bron Bronco got the program. Back. Yeah, if you go, are you going all time or recent? What do you? Because if you go all-time, I mean, back in the day, they were in the same league and played Colorado a bunch of times, and all the games with CSU must be able yeah. to Denver But I'm figuring with the, the bowl. Get, but <sighs> I, I can tell you, man, they, they, they saved that Vegas Bowl. And uh, it was, obviously... It was floundering. It was floundering. It, it literally was, yeah. And then they, they went in there. Did you talk to that uh, Tina Kunzer-Murphy or Murphy Kunzer? I can never forget. I never Best thing that ever happened, getting BYU five years yeah. in a row. 
Right. I mean, they just the people flock down there. There's just no doubt about it. So play it in that stadium. I think that would be tremendous for both programs. Uh, even better, even better than playing in Provo. I think you would get a big time national. Uh, run for playing in that game. And if th- this deal here comes to pass, and we don't know what's going to happen by any stretch. No one does. But if they have the opportunity to, uh, maybe not opportunity isn't the right word, but they're forced to alter their schedule, uh, I think people will understand this year uh, it's a one-time deal, and if you have to just go, even if you have to play some of these independents twice, I think Liberty and New Mexico State played each other twice. Somehow they that did. was thought of as a, you, you don't do that whatsoever. And I think Jay Drew quoted uh, the Liberty AD or the New Mexico AD, or I'm a baseball guy, and so we're used to playing series. Uh, and so. one of them pointed out, oh, the Packers and Bears play twice a year. It hasn't exactly ruined those teams. I know. We do it in the NFL every year, With obviously within your own divisions. You play each other uh, for a total of six games with 14 divisions. And so the, the world rolls on. I, I think that everyone would understand. And I've been saying this about sports in general. If the NBA comes back with some sort of... Um, I don't think convolute is the right word I'm looking for, but uh, some format that is just drastically different than anything that they've ever done. I don't think anybody cares because we'll have sports back. I was thinking about this. You know, you go in places like Ohio State and Alabama, their spring game, they sell out. It's a joke, but that's what they do, and that just indicates the passion that those people have. Well, if Utah and BYU, say for whatever reason here, and uh, the end of this month or June, the NCA said, okay, you could have uh, 10 practices and the 10th will let you play a game. There'd probably be 30,000 people who would go to that thing this year. <laughs> and they would never get that under normal circumstances, you know. You never know what the weather's like in late March, early April around here. This year it was pretty good. But I've been in spring uh, games uh, at both stadiums where the regu- you have, you're in shorts and the other one you've got a parka on. You know, you never know. And obviously if they moved it now, the weather would be better. But people are just starving for this stuff. So whatever configuration that we have the college sports especially in our community college football because the two things that rock are college football and the jazz obviously they're the number ones and number two things that we have going on and if you had any form of that people would be going crazy it would because it would me would also would be indicative of so many other things that are allowable to go on in our world that we're all starving to get back for so if we had that that would just be one indication that uh uh, a, B, C, D, E, F, G stuff, whatever, That's it's, it's normal too. So I think if BYU gets a funky schedule this year, people will say, okay, yeah, we'll deal with it. It'll be fine in the short term, and then we'll catch it back up. I don't know that that's going to happen, and I don't even know if there's a funky schedule that they just have to exclusively play the independents because, as you pointed out on television last night, there's that deal with the Notre Dame situation in the ACC, and if the ACT, ACC is going to allow Notre Dame to play whomever, well, that creates an opening for maybe BYU to schedule some ACC teams if they have to do it on the fly. If you're only playing conference games and someone plays Notre Dame, then there's essentially 15 ACC teams. So what you brought up last night on Talking Sports 2. This is just like the Pac-12 needs BYU on Thanksgiving weekend because Notre Dame is at Stanford or at USC. 
and you don't want to give somebody a bye. If they're playing conference games only, that means they've already eliminated game 12. They've already eliminated game 11. Maybe they've eliminated games 10 and 9. Maybe not. Who knows if we're talking. When you say conference only, I don't know if they're going to play 8 or 9 or 10 games. They're going to try and play as many as possible. And once you get down into that 8, 9, 10 region, I don't think anybody wants to buy at that point. At that point, everybody's looking to get one more game. And I found it interesting that some of these stories talk about, well, no one's really talked with BYU. You know, when you're talking with New Mexico State or Army or Liberty or whoever. Well, if they're saying that, that means BYU's talking to somebody. I mean, Tom Holmes is not sitting down there doing nothing, taking a nap while the rest of college football plans. So he's probably talked to the two people, uh, Notre Dame's AD, and the head of programming at ESPN, those are the two people that BYU needs to align themselves with. And then wherever Notre Dame, if Notre Dame's playing a Big Ten game, then there's an extra Big Ten team that needs a game. If they're playing a Pac-12 game, if that's some of what gets salvaged, if the Pac-12 is trying to hold on to TV money, they're not trying to cancel the Notre Dame games. The Notre Dame games are big games. They're cash. They're huge. The networks want those. So I think BYU will come out of this with something that's representative. I, I just can't believe if they're shortening the season, they're going to be giving people buys. I don't know which random ACC, Pac-12, or Big Ten team it might be. You know, BYU's schedule might have to be recreated on the fly. But why in the world? The networks want games. The schools want games. They're not going to leave somebody sitting by the side of the road just because. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I realize things could get completely jacked up this year. You know, plan for the worst. Hope for the best. There's no reason to give up hoping for the best. We all know it may not happen, but you might as well allow yourself the possibility something good is going to happen. And I think even if things get just all turned upside down and it's on short notice, they're still going to be looking to plug BYU in to play at 8 or 8.30 or whatever on a Saturday night on the however many Saturday nights there are games. And they're launching an ACC network, and they need games for it. And so the schedule may get turned around, and BYU could end up playing somebody we never thought they were going to play. It, it could be some random, I have no idea. You know, Who knows? It could be Virginia and Bronco. <laughs> who knows? You know, It depends on how short a notice they have to juggle all of these. I think the only way they play 8, 9, 10 is if they think, we gotta, we got to get the season in and get the playoffs in because the second wave or the third wave or whatever, I don't know, whatever some doctor or medical person tells them, and after that it's going to be hard to play, then they'll just crunch in a short season. Or, you know, if they don't play in the fall, it gets to the spring and they're up against the NFL draft, they may have to shorten the season there. Those are the two scenarios where I see them playing eight, nine, or ten games. Otherwise, these guys are going to play 12 games. They need the money. Especially if they have to play without fans or if they have to social distance so you can't have, you know, 80,000 people in an 80,000-seat stadium. You can only have 25 or 45 or I don't know, whatever the rules are, whatever makes sense at the time. You know, they're going to be looking for every buck. So I think that, you know, worrying, oh, no, no one's going to play BYU. 0.001%. Worry about something else. You think anybody was worried about that, though? I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I don't know. I, I don't know. I can't speak well, for whatever fans, they are you are worried? Things. How you hanging on? Where are you? <laughs> I think you're fine. I think you got a thousand things more important to worry about than that. I think BYU is going to play a bunch of football games this year if everyone else plays a bunch of football games this year. I don't think, you know, the whole, it's conference games only. What will the independents do? Um, they'll play pro- high-profile games on TV. That's what they'll do. 
Yeah, I don't. I I didn't sense anybody worrying about that they wouldn't actually play games that they they would have a, a buy for their I, season. I just think that the schedule may not be the way it stands right now. Yeah, but and, they'll still have opponents to play. How about this? How about six home games against Notre Dame? Six road games against Notre Dame. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Twelve game series. <laughs> Probably, yeah, that'd probably be awesome, man. It, I did think, I wonder if it really got, you know, if things really got messed up, would they go home and home with Notre Dame? I mean, if things are just, I think you know. the best case scenario. You that, like the for. whole schedule's just turned upside down. I still think that everybody who has Notre Dame on their schedule is thinking, especially the teams with home games, when they have say, Notre yeah. Dame coming into their stadium, uh, how do we save that one? <laughs> <laughs> they will go to any length. But if I'm BYU, I don't need to play them at home. I could play them in Vegas, and it would be just as good, if not better. Yep. That, it, yeah, absolutely. I, I've always thought, and uh, I hope Tom Holmes chased this down. He probably, you know, I think you have to chase these things down ten times before they actually happen. I always thought BYU, I've told Yach this multiple times, and Yach's like, no, oh, not this one again, DJ. But your point is well <laughs> taken on this, even though it BYU is. BYU uh, and Notre Dame play every year on conference championship weekend when there aren't a lot of football games, right? There's... Uh, what are there, 10 leagues now? Are there 10 leagues playing conference championship games? Yeah. And, and one of them is on Friday night. Usually the Pac-12 has been Friday night. Maybe there's two on Friday night. And so you've got networks with windows. Why not a BYU-Notre Dame game? And you get to play a 13th game if you don't play in the continental U.S. So play in Hawaii one year. <laughs> Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal all have domes. Go play there. There are Notre Dame fans and BYU fans who will pack every one of those places. And go. Notre Dame isn't going to do that. There's, what's, what's the incentive of doing that? 13th game. You need that 13th data point in case you're tied Why? with another one-loss well, team. Uh, but then, but suppose you lose that data point. I think they should play it in Dana Point. Ooh. There's no way. <laughs> you know Dana Point's a little too, you know, a little too highbrow, a little too hoity-toity, a little too upper. They're not dealing with the traffic, PK. You know they're not. Well, you do it on a way yeah, up. It's Notre Dame. And South, you Bend's, a, you the, South Bend's in the middle of nowhere, and the, tra- <laughs> the traffic, you better get there early, coming off yeah. that, whatever that freeway is, yeah. coming down from Chicago, as I've done. So anytime you got Notre Dame involved, there's going to be traffic. I, I don't see any reason why Notre Dame would want that game. And they're already finishing their season with a high-profile game, and then the next week, Notre Dame doesn't need any more high-profile. Notre Dame is the highest of the highest profiles. They're you, they're bigger than anybody out there, and, and whether you know they're good or not, not, remains to be seen in an individual year, and things have changed to a degree, but they still are the number one college football program. They're not going to schedule that. There's no advantage for them to do that. If they're if they're 12 and one or 11 and one, they're in. They don't need any more high profile. They're in. Are you thinking a sand football game at Dana Point? What do you got in mind exactly? Dana Point High School. <laughs> Is there really a Dana Point High? I don't know. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> well, you were down there in Pedro. You were almost there. Uh, that whole yeah, Dana Point, uh, the whole southern Orange County beach scene there is that's 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 a bunch of gazillionaires down there. Yeah, I, I, Mission Viejo, whatever. I, I, I <laughs> Mission Viejo, Saddleback Community College. <laughs> I, I know where that yeah. is. I've been to that. I've been to Saddleback. Isn't isn't Saddleback in Mission Viejo? 
It's, it's close to there. it if it yeah. isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's down there. It's yeah. right up on uh, on the hill overlooking the freeway. You see yeah. the yeah, yeah, yeah. sign and the lights and all that stuff. Right. Yeah, it is in that area. So, yeah, they're play, playing at Saddleback. But but Data Point, which sounds cool, close to Dana Point. That's why I said that. But Wordplay. That's a concocted idea that I don't see where Notre Dame would ever want to do that because they don't need any more publicity. They've got all the publicity that they could possibly handle. For them, it's just a matter of are they good enough in a given season and to to get themselves in position. Anytime they're in position, Notre Dame is going to get the benefit of the doubt because they bring – the most eyeballs. You talk about a national program. BYU likes to talk about them themselves being a national fan base. And to an extent, they have it. But put that times whatever, and that's what you get with Notre Dame. And maybe I'm bringing in my biases here because everyone has biases. Uh, anyone who says they don't have a bias is an absolute liar. Never believe anybody who says, A, it's not about the money, and B, I don't have any biases. Not true. Well, if it's about the money, more money for that 13th game. But they don't need it. It's just, they, that's, Does, that's the whole point. People do stuff for money even though they don't need it all the time, PK. Not Notre Dame. <laughs> 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 they, they, they don't, they, they, every cent that they get from that contract is theirs. <laughs> no one has ever said, boy, if Notre Dame could just get more money. Coming up next, our college basketball insider. Steve Cleveland on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. Some technical difficulties with the phone, so Steve Cleveland is going to join us. Thanks to Zoom, because Zoom is taking over the world. So it's going to sound a little different, but it's still going to sound like Steve. Steve, good morning. Good morning, guys. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank goodness. All right, we want to uh, start here where we started with you the, uh, the last couple weeks. Uh, the last dance on Sunday night, it's, it's two hours of new programming, so we're all watching it. I don't know if that would have happened if... If things have been different, but they aren't, so we're all watching it all the time. And I think one of the takeaways here for a lot of people is Jordan was really stressed and drained and exhausted as he chased the third title in 93. There have been Bulls fans that said, boy, if he hadn't gone to baseball, they'd have won eight in a row because they'd have won the two while he was gone. Look at how tired and fried he was. Do you think he really could have won eight in a row, or would they have gotten beaten it somewhere because he was just spent? You know, I mean, I, I think that's difficult to tell. You could certainly tell that he was spent and uh, that all of it had just gotten to him from the media, the press, and all of that. Uh, personally, I, I think it may have had more to do with him winning three more later on, the fact that he could get a break, take, get away from it, and uh, refocus. Uh, but it, it's incredible as you watch this to see the intensity of the media. And, you know, you are the media. I've been part of the media but at that level uh, where you have no life, and now he's at a point where he's coming under scrutiny for things that uh, people are finding out that aren't 
major issues, but, you know, when you put a guy up to where, you know, he is, uh, in everybody's mind, he's been perfect in everything he's done, and then all of a sudden he's got a few personal flaws, and they just dig it out every time they see him. And it's just amazing the amount of people that surrounded Michael, and, and it didn't matter where he went. There's a reason he, you know, that golf was his therapy. And even though he was gambling or this or that, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, because he gambles, uh, you know, $1,000 for him was like you and I playing a $2 Nassau. <laughs> it's uh, that's just what he did. But that is where he found a lot of peace and solace was getting out there with his buddies. And uh, you could tell he was spent. And I, I never really noticed even thought about it, to be honest with you. Uh, but it's really apparent watching all the video. Yeah, that's one of the things I think is tricky for a coach because in the documentary, he's talking about being on the golf course. Put the gambling stuff aside. I don't really know. That's not my point here. But he was saying that he appreciated Phil Jackson, who was a veteran coach, understanding the need to give the players off, let them get away so that they can come back rested. How tricky is that as a coach to know when you need to press on the gas as opposed to release the gas to let these guys breathe a little bit? Well, I think, first of all, they had a veteran team. So there was a great deal of trust between that coaching staff and those players. Um, and I, I think I, I know in teams, I'll, I'll give you an example. And, and Kelly Wesley and I, I remember several months ago, we were just chatting and talking about our first time to the NC2A tournament when we kind of turned the, turned the tide and we, and we had actually won the Mountain West Conference regular season title. And uh, we were playing in the, in the, you know, we won the Mountain West Conference tournament. Then we went and we played Cincinnati uh, down in San Diego. And you know, I, it, was been my, it was my first experience. I, got, I had a good staff. We were young. And, and, and probably at that point in time, as I look back to my experiences, we did too much. And it was one of those things where our workouts, our practices, everything was intense. Everybody was excited to be there. And we felt like, you don't, you don't want to take a moment off. You want to be prepared. You want to be watching film. You want to be getting shots up. We had competitive workouts down at the tournament. And looking back, I would say that it was a game where at halftime it was close. I think it might have been tied, and they ended up pulling away and winning. Uh, but we had a conversation about, you know, we probably overdid it. And, and, I, and I think that I look back on that and think, I think, I think you know, they're right. I mean, we, we look back there. We, we, had, we had a good shooting team. but We had really, really mature players. But I think we didn't take the time to give them some freedom and enjoy the experience and we did that at other times, and guys, I think, played better. But I, I think there is something to be said about just taking that pressure off, dialing it back a little bit, enjoy the moment. Yeah, you've already played 30-some games. It's not like you're going to change your offense. Maybe you're going to tweak an inbounds play or uh, maybe a couple of quick hitters because you're playing a different team. But I think that a, a wise coach understands his team and says, hey, let's take a step back and – Let's gather ourselves. We'll continue to watch film or whatever the circumstances are. And I, I think we were all excited as a coaching staff, the players. We only knew one way to do it. You know, what we, we should have done probably, and as we did other times, gone and done something socially, got away, go see a movie, uh, 
you know, maybe go play miniature golf or whatever it might have been, but do something away from the game that got their mind off it. Because I, I love that team, that, that first team. They, they, they had great character. They were intelligent. They could shoot it. We just had a little bit of everything that was really good. Uh, and so that was my personal experience with it. And it did help me in the other tournaments we played in. And we were, you know, we were really close in games. and couldn't quite get over the hump. But it did make a difference to get the guys more relaxed for that. Former BYU basketball coach Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, joined us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Episodes 5 and 6 of The Last Dance chronicled the Olympics and Isaiah Thomas, who had an NCAA title and two NBA titles, being left off the team. There was no reason for that, except for politics. And I'm curious, and that Olympics team was just rife with it because there's the politics of Isaiah getting along or not getting along uh, with Jordan and Jordan hating him, plus Isaiah having run-ins with Magic and Bird over time. But there was also, hey, we're going to have a college guy on the team, and then should it have been Shaq who was better or Leitner had more team success? Well, Shaq hadn't played in other international tournaments. So there was a lot of drama and politics swarming around choosing that team. How much do you find that that's just the norm in the world of basketball? You know, there are going to be personality conflicts, and I think you got to put that aside. Uh, it, it's to be honest with you, it's a shame Isaiah didn't play. I mean, his pedigree and all the things that he had done, uh, I understand that you have that, and I think all of those guys would have been able and very capable of, you know, kind of extending all olive branch and, hey, this is we're playing for our country. Uh, I, I don't see any reason it wouldn't have worked. There, there might have been some uh, – it, it may have been difficult at first, but I'm sure that they could have all got through it. So that's unfortunate, and and I think that I don't you know we don't I don't think we really know the story there. I mean, obviously there were feelings and there were conversations, um, and I you know back then the Olympic Committee this was a brand new thing to bring the NBA guys in, kind of turn this thing around. But yeah, you're you're gonna have and those that's what coaches do. You you have personalities on every single team you have, and and there are guys that have that don't get along and they're not best friends when they leave the, the you know, and I, I may have mentioned this before, but I remember my last junior college team with Ray for Austin, who played in the league for 14 years and Ron Solis, who came and played for me at BYU. One was from Oakland, one was from New York. They, they, they weren't in love with each other. They competed. They had, they were strong willed. They weren't doing things socially together, but we made a point of, making sure they were together at the right times and the right moments, not when we were playing games. And, and there, there were some altercations. There was a competitiveness of practice. There were guys getting after it. And, and that happens in every program. And you control that as a coaching staff. And sometimes, you know, you, you want that. You want that competitiveness. You, you want them to battle every day. But you got to have it under control. And you don't want to get to the place where, you know, it, it involves hurting the team or, it, things become physical in practice. But, I mean, anybody that's coached long enough has had situations and circumstances and practices where games get competitive, practice gets competitive, tempers flare, people say things that they may not normally say. I mean, that's, that's the nature of this business. I mean, it's competition. There's going to be talk. Those things take place. But the key thing is to make sure that it's under control and that the players understand what the big picture is here. So I think they could have worked through it. They had great coaches and – a lot of veteran guys. Uh, it's unfortunate it didn't work out. But to lay that on on Michael, uh, I don't know that that's right either. 
What's a bigger form of motivation, the desire to succeed or the fear of failing? <laughs> oh, boy. That's, uh, we've experienced it all, you know? I mean, I, th- I think the people that can put the fear behind them, fear is a healthy thing. I mean, it keeps you on your toes. It gets you in a place where you uh, don't take things for granted. There's, there's an attention to detail. I mean, I think as a coach, we operate like that. I mean, it's like, we, how much film can we watch? How much can we do? But to be honest with you, the more positive of those two traits is just that desire to be successful and to have that attitude about wanting to win. But so it, there is a combination. I mean, I think you have a little bit of both, but if one exceeds the other, where you, you're really confident and we're going to win, and, but you don't do take the preparation, then you, know, you end up not reaching your full potential. But the other end of it is if you're so frozen and fearful by all the little minutiae and all the things that are going on, you're never going to be your full self. So you have to have a little bit of both. Uh, but, but certainly that you're going to err, err on the side of confidence and uh, the desire to win and the desire to be the very best you can be. But when the pressure's really on, you're, you're not worried about losing. You're thinking about making the play that's going to win. If you're going to win the game, I guess you could be thinking about losing and then lose the game. But does that fear of failure, in, you know, with 10 seconds left in a one-point game, does the fear of failure win it? I wouldn't think so. No, no, no. And I don't think anybody that I know, my, at least my experience, is those, those are never feelings I had you know, in my mind in, in any team I've ever had. If we were down one and we were shooting free throws, we believed we were going to make them both and win the game. I mean, sometimes that doesn't happen, but uh, I, don't, I don't think ever I can remember a team where there was a fear of failure that ended up hurting us in, in any situation or circumstance. But that it doesn't mean – I mean, you take a look at just pregame stuff. The day of a game as a coach and a player, I remember as a, it was way more different than a coach and a player because you've got so many things going on. I mean, I, I, had, I was looking at so many different scenarios and making sure we were prepared before we went out there. I mean, I always had to, at some point in time, find myself in my room, dark room, go in, close my eyes for 30 to 45 minutes and just clear my head and fall asleep if I could and come there just absolutely refreshed and ready to play. Everybody has different things that they do to get ready. Coaches have things, players have things that they do. But for me, when I felt like the pressure was getting to me, uh, that's where I went. I just, I just, I would just take myself and just get in my room, maybe listen to some music, fall asleep for a little bit, wake up, rest, let's go. I mean, the plan was already in place, but you sit around and worry about things and, and that's not constructive. And so you end up getting back. And that's what worked for me. Everybody's got different things they do to get prepared. But I, I never, ever, really ever thought as a coach or a player about the fear of failure. I always felt like, hey, we've we got a chance. And you know what? There were a lot of games in my career uh, as a coach, especially in rebuilding programs, where we had opportunities to upset teams, where there wasn't a great deal of pressure on us. And the pressure comes when everybody expects you to win. You know, it's easier when you're the underdog and there's no expectations. But when the expectations comes, then that fuel, that that fear of failure plays more of a part in the lives of players and coaches. But again, you just have to have the things that you do to block that out of your mind and stay focused on the present in the moment and not being the best you can be. 
One of the things we're seeing with this Last Dance stuff is Phil Jackson being this sage. You know, they're interviewing him. I, I don't know if he's in Montana, and it's obvious he's older. He's got white hair. He's got white white beard. So he's not really receiving any form of either praise or criticism. He's like this sage guy. But when he was going through it, there was this argument, oh, he just has the best talent. And so that's why he won six with the Bulls and five with the Lakers. And anybody could have done it. And I think to myself, well, wait a second. The guys who preceded him didn't do it, but yet he took the same players and they won. And he won those 11 titles. So my thought for you is how important do you think he was in those 11 titles and obviously the six with the Bulls and what made him as good as he was? I think I think a lot. I mean, obviously the triangle offense and and all of the things that were happening on the floor and the talent, but we we all know that it is always going to be the intangibles that make a difference. That that the difference between being really really good and being great, oftentimes doesn't have anything to do with a jump shot. It doesn't have anything to do with athleticism. Don't get me wrong, talent talent. You got to have talent to win championships, but talent is never enough to get to the highest level and sustain it for a long period of time. You have to have the intangibles and the culture. You know, it was a little weird and strange, you know, to see this existentialist who, you know, was into yoga and meditation and doing those kinds of things way beyond before his time. I mean, people weren't doing those kinds of things. And, and he had, he found, I mean, Phil was able to find his inner self and help other people find their inner self. And there's a lot of different ways that people do that today, you know, and the, there's so many different organizations and groups that come into corporate groups and teams. I do some of that myself with culture building. And there's a lot of things that Phil Jackson did that nobody else was doing. And I do not believe for a moment. I'm not saying those teams wouldn't have been successful, but they don't get to where they are without Phil Jackson. And, and list, a lot of people look at him as some quirky, weird kind of, you know, dude out there that's uh, – all over the place and, and he's taking these guys and doing things He's some kind of a hippie looking guy that, but at the end of the day, I just watching the video and the film on this, those guys have bought into that. I mean, they, they may not have bought into it at first. And, and I'm sure that initially they're going, is this guy crazy? But his, his, his ability to get guys to really clear their minds and to, to think through these things and, find ways to meditate and put yourself in positions, all those yoga positions, all of those things have a way to just relax one and find yourself and be able to breathe. You know, breathing is a really important thing. You start thinking a simple little thing like breathing wins and loses games. Guys are nervous, hyperventilating, can't, but if you can just have a calmness about you and you think about the world we live in today, you know, I mean, it's all about being mindful and calm and, being in the best place that you can be to be successful, whether it's in basketball, whether it's in teaching, whether it's in parenting. I think Phil was way ahead of the curve on this and had a lot to do with that success. I'm a big believer in coaching trees. It just strikes me as uh, just too bizarre and too mathematically unlikely that it's just an accident that these guys who win a bunch of titles worked with someone or worked for or with, either way, someone who went on to win a bunch of titles. And you look at Steve Kerr and the fact he played for Popovich and Phil Jackson. Could the Warriors have won a title with anyone coaching them? Probably. But could they have won as many as they won? And 
you know, the Durant thing eventually, you know, didn't work, but it could have not worked earlier if Steve wasn't as good with personalities. So how much do the Warriors owe Kerr and the people he played for? How much do you buy into the coaching tree there? Well, I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm a com- really supportive of what you just said. And uh, I think that when you look at the great coaches today, and, you know, I, I mean, when I coached, it was, it was a bit of an aberration for me to get a Division I college basketball job. I mean, I was a high school coach. I mean, I played at Irvine. I come out of there, go, taking the LSAT to go to law school, and I get a phone call. And the guy asks, wants to know if I want to teach AP government and, and history at a brand-new high school. And, and, I, and I said, I never really thought about that. I, I, was, I, I was a political science major. My, my whole focus was this, it was what I was going to do. And, and then I had an opportunity to maybe to go over to England and play professionally for a little bit. And, and I remember my wife saying, you know what, we just need to get, you know, you need to get a job and get to work. And, and anyway, I ended up taking this coaching job with never, ever having a thought in my mind about being a basketball coach. I loved the game. And, and I had some wonderful mentors, a man there that had been my high school coach and, uh, and shared things and learned things. And over time, uh, you know, I realized how important a coaching tree was in terms of everything you do from organization to practice planning to game planning. And I, and I think I really found that out uh, as I became a junior college coach and I had mentors in my life. And but I was kind of new to it. You know, I didn't I didn't wasn't in a program where I stayed there and had my head coach, Tim Tiff, be my mentor. And I it, it wasn't like that. What ended up happening is that people that I hired and uh, you know, I, I look at Dave and, and Juddy and Heath, guys that, that have gone on to be really successful coaches. We were all kind of doing it at the same time. I'll be honest with you that, you know, there were things I learned from everybody. And, I mean, probably the, the greatest mentors for me were Boyd Grant and Ron Adams. I mean, they had the greatest influence in my life. Ron Adams was at Fresno State. Of course, he's been the defensive coordinator for the Golden State Warriors now for a number of years. Boyd Grant was one of the most successful college coaches in the West Coast. I went to all their camps. I went and listened to them. I went to their practices. Those were my mentors. And then as things evolved, I kind of developed as I became a community college coach and became a Division I coach. I took from what they, you know, I learned from them about organization and motivation. And, and then I became who I became. And I learned from, from Heath and from Dave and Juddy. You know, just having Juddy on our staff, think about that. I mean, I was never part of the Rick Majerus tree, but he was a brilliant coach. And, and his game preparation things were uh, different than some of the things I had done. I gleaned from that. And so and sometimes we have a coaching tree where you're just right there. And sometimes you glean from it through assistance and others. But there's not a coach that I, I've worked with. Andy Toulson, who came in and had a perspective of the NBA and in college basketball. And, you know, just you, you look at the people. I mean, I, I think about the, 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 the coaching staffs that I've had over the 35, 37 years. I've learned something from everybody. But I, I do believe that having a coaching tree is really important. And, uh, you know, I, I, lo- I look at Mark Pope today and look at where he's come from as a player and who he's worked for and been in situations and circumstances. And he, he is a combination of a little bit of everybody that he's worked for or played for, and that's, think that's what's happened. And uh, that's why we see 
We don't see junior college coaches getting Division One jobs anymore. They're, 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 you're seeing the best candidates come either as assistants or head coaches from other programs, but they've been in a tree. They understand how Division One basketball works. And as an athletic director and as a president of a school, you want to hire people that come from good coaching trees. And so hey, I am grateful I had a chance to be at that level. And uh, But I, I fully agree with you, both of you, that a coaching tree is everything. And, and, and certainly what the Golden State Warriors experience had a lot to do with their coaches as well, even though they had great players. So then do you feel a connection to BYU with the coaching tree angle because you hired Dave Rose, Dave Rose hired Mark Pope, and then obviously Mark Pope uh, succeeds Dave Rose, who you brought to the university from the junior college ranks? You know what? I, I, you know, the other day, this is a, it was a probably eight or nine months ago, I was in Provo, and I, I had sent Mark a, a text telling him I was going to be in town, and uh, I, was, I was up there for a, for a wedding, and uh, I said, you mind if I come by and just, you know, see the guys? I, you know, I don't, I'm just not going to show up. And he said, no, no, no. And he sent me the sweetest text. He said, listen, the, this is, uh, this is you, you started this, you know, in, in, in terms of that coaching tree. I never thought about that, and certainly uh, Ian and Dave have probably forgot more than I know. But, but at the end of the day, uh, I felt a connection. That was a really sweet thing for Mark to say and to do and say, hey, I'm part of, I'm part of your tree. And uh, so in, hopefully in some little way that I've helped uh, to make that a better place. But at the end of the day, those things are really, really important. And uh, I think everybody needs to have – and I, I think we evolve. You have a system. You have a culture. You do certain things. And you learn over time. And you ch- things are always changing. But there are some core values to this business that uh, are really pure and you got to stay with. And, and making sure that the intangibles are taken care of is really going to allow you to perform at the highest level. And, then, and when the moment is there, those coaches, those teams are the ones that win championships. And, and, or, they, or they just overachieve and do things that maybe nobody ever thought they could do, despite the fact that maybe they didn't have the talent that another, another team had. Steve, as always, we appreciate a few minutes and we appreciate your flexibility. Thanks for uh, the workaround solution to the phone issues and uh, coming on a Zoom. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad we're just zooming audio because I wasn't ready for a video. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, guys. There's Steve Cleveland, our college basketball insider. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines next on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.